the uh, the shirt that women wear at the beach, right? <laughs> and Chuck ske- Chuck keeps the lower part. There we go. <laughs> yep. Oh, good times. Chuck in good a tube times. top. There you go. Chuck in a tube top. <laughs> well, wow. I take money. This episode is sponsored by Airbrake. I don't know about you, but week in and week out, I spend hours debugging my code when I could be working on building new stuff. Then I started using Airbrake.io, our latest sponsor, and the time I spent debugging was cut in half. Airbrake alerts you to errors in your software, then helps you diagnose and fix them. That means no more wasted time searching log files and more time writing and shipping great code. Airbrake supports .NET and all major programming languages. Sign up at getairbrake.com slash rogues for a free 30-day trial and the chance to win a $500 Amazon gift card at the end of the month. It's a completely free trial, and you'll be shocked at how much time it saves you. Again, that's getairbrake.com slash rogues. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Dave Kimura. Are you my mummy? I mean, oh, hey, hello. (laughs) (laughs) Brian Hogan. Hey, everyone. Eric Berry. <laughs> Did you say, are you my mommy? <laughs> yeah, from Doctor Who, you know? Come on. Oh, okay. <laughs> Hi, I'm Eric. <laughs> I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And uh, this week we have a special guest and future speaker from Ruby Dev Summit, Matthias Korhonen. I think I got close on that. Yeah. Hi. You got that pretty right. Uh, do you want to give us a brief introduction? Let us know who you are, what you work on, why you're famous, all that stuff. Yeah, sure. So I'm not famous, but I'm a developer at a small software consultancy here in Helsinki, Finland, called Gisco Labs. And I've been doing Rails development here for about eight years now. Very cool. Uh, so so yeah. what was your first Rails version when you started? Like, what's what's your <laughs> first version that you remember actually using? I think it's it'll be 2.2. Two or two point three, it might have been right on that edge. Nice. So you were there when the asset pipeline became a controversy. Yes, though I always, I never found it really a controversy. It was a blessing, at least on my end. Yeah. No, absolutely true. I remember adding query strings manually to things to make them <laughs> invalidate, and that wasn't fun. <laughs> cool. Very cool. Nice. <laughs> So our topic today is rail security, and uh, your talk is is entitled Rail Security Beyond the Defaults. Do you want to just talk briefly about what you mean first by beyond the defaults, and then we can get into what rail security is and how you approach it? Yeah, so, so at Gisco, we use Rails basically for everything. So almost all our projects use Rails. And by default, it comes with a rather good set of you know, security defaults, defaults overall. Rails is well known for having sane defaults. So what I've sort of been looking into is, or what I've come to look into over the past few years, no, not past few years, but lately, is uh, what what else can we do as as developers to keep our apps secure? So I'm not like a, a security expert or a cryptographer or anything like that. Rather, my my perspective is just like trying to keep the apps that we build secure for our clients and our users. What type of apps do you build? Uh, mostly we do apps for other businesses. So we try to build things that will enhance the bottom, bottom line of, of our clients in some way, preferably in some measurable way. So we're not all that interested in trying to build the next Twitter or Snapchat or something like that. Nice. So when you say beyond the defaults, what I'm curious to know is, is is there something that that is not out of the box? Some, something that's sort of like the first thing you do beyond what Rails provides when you're building out a new application for a client? Like, what what is that security focused thing that comes to your mind uh, that Rails doesn't already have that that you start with? Well, first of all, well, HTTPS is one. I mean, Rails comes with great support for it, so it'll you can just enable one setting in production.rb and everything will be directed to HTTPS. But obviously, that's sort of uh, on on another layer. So you'll have Nginx or Apache or something like that handling SSL. So that's not in Rails itself. But then in Rails, you can do things like add a content security policy. 
and it's con- a content security policy is a header that lets you define where you where the website is allowed to load assets from in the browser. So you can, for example, allow it to load from your CDN, but disallow everything else. So if by some somehow someone managed to get like a script tag onto your page, it will just do nothing. That actually seems quite effective. That's that's actually a really cool piece of advice that I wasn't familiar with. And that's yeah, that, that's something that's something that's is that something that's available in Rails or something that you have to add on or write write a custom. Uh, it's available in so far as because it's just a header, so you can just add it into the headers in like a before filter. Okay. But if you actually want some tooling around that, then I recommend a gem called Secure Headers. Oh, and Secure Headers will actually allow you to sort of do a multi-layered configuration of it. So you have the defaults for the entire application, and then you can override those or add to, add to them on like a controller or action level. Oh, excellent. So the force force SSL within the Rails config will just do a redirect uh, to the secure protocol, you know, HTTPS. But let's say if you're behind a load balancer, so you're actually terminating the SSL cert, uh, the public one that the client sees uh, at the load balancer. From there, you can balance a load between multiple web servers. Do you also serve between the load balancer and the actual applications SSL as well? You know, with just a self-signed cert or something like that? Or do you think it's efficient to not force that part? Well, first of all, uh, forces cell does a bit more than just the redirect. So it'll add a secure transport security header as well which means that the next time the user goes to the website, it will automatically connect using HTTPS and not HTTP. And then it also marks all the cookies as secure. And then to your second point, I think if it, if the sort of the traffic between the load balancer and the individual app nodes is over a private network, then I don't think it really matters whether it's secured with SSL or not, unless you're actually worried about the security of your private network there. Yeah. No, I, I agree completely. You know, I've seen some companies take take it to the extreme where everything must uh, must be encrypted, even on the private network, even in a isolated uh, VPC, to where even the connections to the SQL server, uh, even though it's all locally, you know, within that environment, they also enable SSL to that. You know, I think at some point you hit overkill. Yeah, you have to sort of balance between what your threat model is and sort of what what the attacks are that you're trying to protect against like i'm not gonna i'm not gonna try and protect our apps against sort of state level nsa hacking attempts because you know we wouldn't even we wouldn't stand a chance against that but that's not our threat model yeah i think most for most people the threat is some sort of automated attack on their on their app yeah, that's, that was going to be my next question: Is what other kinds of attacks are you trying to defend against? You know, there, I'm sure there are some low-hanging fruit things, but what, what kinds of things do you typically see uh, that you have to mitigate, or have you know, uh, have you have you come across some specific situations that you've you've had to mitigate them uh, after the fact? Well, I think like it, it, anybody who has a Rails app deployed uh, in production and has sort of error reporting on it. Well, have seen like attempts to do like cross-site scripting or open redirects or, or of course, I think pretty much all our apps get attempts to go to like slash WP hyphen admin because they, <laughs> there's <laughs> some script out there that uses everything's a WordPress site. But I think as far as most people go, like the, the threat model is automated attacks, unless you're running a really large site and then, then you might have somebody trying to and, sort of so, individu- so- individually target you. And so do you find that a lot of the Rails defaults already already take care of the stuff that's automated? Yeah, I think it, they do take care of a lot. Like uh, cross-site scripting attacks mostly are prevented. And, you know, you have like the automatic escaping of of user input and things like that. So that's I think that's in a pretty good stead. Have you, come across, a, there, as say, have you come across anything that like that Rails defaults don't handle when it comes to the automated attacks that you've seen? Not when you use them correctly. Because <laughs> it's always possible that somebody somewhere has less through uh, some user input directly into the HTML, and then all bets are off. 
Uh, sure. So someone yeah. someone accidentally. So do you, so do you look for that when is there like a sort of an auditing stage that you go through them with the products that you work with uh, at, at your company is just to catch those kinds of developer introduced errors? Mostly no, because we're we're quite small. So our teams usually on projects are like two or three people. So, 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 so two developers someone. or one designer maybe. So. Yeah. Either like we're doing a code review or something, right? Yeah. yeah. So either we're doing sort of a project from scratch where everybody's mostly working on master unless they're developing some distinct sort of feature there. Or then if we're working on an app that's already in production, then we'll usually do features through pull requests and somebody will actually review the code. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's also good to know there's a gym out there called Breakman and it is really good at capture, capturing a lot of the uh, user introduce or developer introduce uh, security issues. So definitely check out that gem if you haven't heard of it. Uh, before we do any kind of commit or merge into our master branch, we always run a breakman report and we also have it built into our continuous integration so it runs on every commit that we push up. Oh yeah, I forgot to mention that we have code climate which I think it actually does use Breakman underneath the hood, but it'll run like secured, it'll run Breakman and some other checks on the code. But that's like a paid product, so, and it's maybe relatively expensive, but that'll also tell you about any security issues you have or. Yeah, we've had Justin who wrote Breakman on the show before. And it's, yeah. It's a terrific tool. Yeah, it's especially great when you have uh, new developers or junior developers, because I. Like I said, I've been doing this for eight years, and I, I like to think that I sort of know what I'm doing now. But when you're new, you don't even know sort of what you need to know. You know, most of the security issues I found within my applications have actually been from third-party JavaScript libraries. It's all centric around uh, cross-site scripting and stuff like that. Like I know Summernote was one of them that, you know, you could do some SQL, in, or not SQL injection, sorry, uh, cross-site scripting. And... You know, to date, I don't think that bug has been plugged yet. So you have to do some sanitizing beyond the default of what Summernote provides in order to protect yourself against that. Yeah, it's quite common to have like some JavaScript plugin from like, I don't know, some analytics package or some live chat thing where you just sort of copy paste code there and then you sort of spit out some variables into the JavaScript. And if you're not careful with escaping those, then you can end up just sticking anything into the script block. And that's not great either. So when I think of security, the first thing I do is I set up my website to run through Cloudflare. And yeah. they handle a lot of the DOS stuff and and some other firewall stuff. How does that work with what you're doing? And do you do you oft also go to Cloudflare or a similar service like that? Well, I haven't actually used Cloudflare in sort of anger. So I have a couple of websites <laughs> there. Uh, but they're there just because it's a convenient way of getting an, uh, an SSL cert for them. So they're like static websites hosted on GitLab, GitLab pages or GitHub pages. Uh, so okay. that's, Cloudflare is definitely great for like the the denial service protection and I think we should maybe perhaps even use it more but we haven't really gotten around to it we haven't had any apps that got targeted by a denial service attack really so it hasn't been an issue for us at least yet fingers crossed Hmm. one one point that I usually think about when I'm thinking about security is authentication I mean you, you can do a lot of things to keep the user input from, you know, doing SQL injection and stuff like that. And Rails kind of handles a lot of that stuff. But if somebody sets their password to P-A-S-S-W-O-R-D, I mean, there's yep. really not a whole lot you can do about that unless you're setting some kind of validation on the password when you get it. Um, are there good practices for that? Or are you just kind of you know, out of luck or do you do two factor authentication or what kind of approaches do you typically use there to keep people from accessing data they shouldn't have access to? Yeah, it's tricky uh, guarding the user against themselves, really. So we mostly don't enforce sort of password rules because those tend to be highly annoying to almost everybody. So we'll enforce like the length. I think eight characters or more is the typical what we have. We've had a couple of 
a couple of clients who've sort of demanded that they must have password rules, usually like copied over from their IT department. And then like a few months go by and then they come back and are like, oh, you should, you should probably remove those password rules or our clients are complaining. <laughs> what I like is Dropbox has a great sort of JavaScript strength validator, uh, mm-hmm. which has a, the name is sort of the string of letters, so I can't remember what it's called. So I'll try and find it for the, for the show notes. But it will also like check against common passwords. So it will, dis- it will tell you if you, like, it's a bad password if you type in pass W0RD and things like that. And then I'll also do like an entropy calculation on it. So just try and guide the user into picking a good password, even though we're not enforcing it as such. I'm sorry, this password is taken by another user. <laughs> yeah, that's a great <laughs> message. You have the Love same it. password as these people. Well, I just remember yeah. people talking about the Adobe hack and the Stripe tables and all the stuff that happened there. And it's just, you know, it's it's so interesting because... It was like, oh, these are the most common passwords for all the people who are using uh, Adobe stuff and have an Adobe account. And I mean, these big companies fall for this crap, you know, instead of, you know, salting the passwords and, you know, enforcing, you know, certain rules. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I understand what you're saying, but at the same time, they're annoying, but they're there for a reason. It, it forces people to create good passwords. And yeah. And, is is there a good library for the sort of uh, password strength indicator? Or yeah, so the the one from Dropbox ZXCVBN that's great. Okay. At least on the on the JavaScript side, I think there's probably a Ruby implementation of that as well. Mm. That's pretty good. And if you really want want to go extreme, uh, Troy Hunt from Have I Been Pawned? released an archive of, I think it was 400 million leaked passwords. So you could theoretically check against all of those and disallow them. Yep. But That'd be a very good uh, project for somebody to create and put out there as an, as an API. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting... Well, first of all, you probably don't want to use a remote API where you send your users uh, passwords to. But. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. But... but even loading 400 million passwords into memory seems like an interesting thing to do. Yeah. You know, if you're using device, there is a extension called device security extension, which will add on top of device additional security things where you can make the password expirable. Uh, you can uh, archive the password so the user cannot reuse the same password X number of times and stuff like that. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I think we've used that somewhere where where the client had exactly that sort of requirement. I think they had the same sort of rules in their sort of active directory, Windows logins, so they wanted those same rules for their web service as well. One of the things that I've always been interested in is what if you're dealing with data that's somewhat sensitive? Uh, are there things that you've used in the past to uh, encrypt the data before you store it and then decrypt it when you bring it back out? How do you handle sensitive data um, when, once, once, it, once you receive it from the user? Yeah, we've definitely used, uh, so we've encrypted, for example, credentials to outside services uh, using like AES, but I can't really remember what exactly you used for that. There is a gold gem, Adder Encrypted which will do what you're saying, Brian, where it'll take the input from the user and then encrypt it with a reversible key. So it's not as strong as something like Bgrip because you are able to reverse it. Yeah. But it does store it on the database, uh, obfuscated or encrypted. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you kind of you need to be able to you know, reverse it so you can get their data back so they can use it or you can yeah. use it. Um, but that, that's always been one of those, one of those concerns. You know, what's, the, uh, you know, what's the easiest way and the, and, and the, the, the best compromise between uh, ease, ease of development and security uh, when you're taking someone's stuff? Like, so you want, to, you, know, you, you want to allow them to connect to other back-end services. You've got to source credentials. Uh, maybe you're dealing with healthcare data. You need to store... You know, maybe you need to store that social security number. I mean, what do you? How do you do that? What are the steps that you take to do that? 
Yeah, no, Postgres, Postgres also has support for like column level encryption. So you could choose to encrypt a specific column, but I haven't really had a chance to try that yet. But yeah. it'll be interesting to see how that plays with Rails and Active Record. Yeah, it's always it's always one of those things like, well, just don't store that data. And sometimes, honestly, that's not an option. Sometimes the, the yeah. requirements are such that you do have to take sensitive um, personal data and you want to do your best to uh, to protect against it. So I, I think I've used the, the, the one that Dave mentioned, the uh, Etter encrypted one, and that worked. That seemed to work nicely. Um, but, you know, it's one of those things where I'm also not that versed in application security. So I don't necessarily want to go around recommending that that's a thing to use because I, I, it works for me. Uh, and that's the sort of the caveat I have to put on it. So I'm always looking for what other people are doing to protect themselves or protect the data that they, they take in their applications. Yeah, one yeah. caveat to encrypting at the database level is you kind of lose the ability to search on it or at least search efficiently. Yeah, that's definitely true. But if you're if you've come to come to the conclusion that it has to be encrypted, then you know what are you gonna do? Yeah. It's also hard with like once you're encrypting it, then you have to store those encryption keys somewhere. And if you're storing right. them with the app, then there's almost no point to it. Because if they right. get the app, then they get the encryption keys. I mean, you're really only guarding against them getting like a SQL dump of your of your database somehow, but not the actual live connection. Yeah. So beyond authentication, we start to get more into, uh, I guess, the business logic or the Rails application part. So how do you handle, uh, you know, I know in Rails 4 they introduced the whitelisting to where everything is by default blacklisted through strong parameters. How do you handle more complex uh, situations where certain users can edit certain attributes, but others cannot? Yeah, we've we've gone through some iterations on that. So I think we started out by like probably what every every developer does at some point. They just have a ton of ifs all over the place with various conditions, and that obviously doesn't scale very well. And then we've tried using can can, but what we now have, what our default solution now is pundit, and pundit's just great because I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's a Ruby gem that it's very lightweight, so you basically just write plain old Ruby sort of classes that define who's allowed who's allowed to edit what what resources. Oh yeah, yeah, I'm a big fan of pundit. But Pundit really handles the authorization for an action, uh, you know, for a controller action. It really doesn't dive into the strong parameters, does it? It might have changed. Oh, uh, right, strong parameters. Oh, you know, sorry, I missed the strong parameters part of that question entirely. <laughs> uh, yeah. Pundit's really cool. And I, I like how they have separated it out to where it's not just one big, huge abilities.rb file. Now, I love all the work that Ryan Bates has done, but I think that one was kind of a miss of hindsight. I mean, it 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 seems like the abilities RB when you start using it, it seems great. It's really simple. Yeah. You just add more rules, mm-hmm. and then like you sort of wake up two years later and you're like, oh god, what does any of this mean? Yeah. But yeah, I don't I don't think there are any particularly good solutions for like the strong attributes issue. Of like certain users allowed to being allowed to update certain bits of the model. Yeah, the closest thing I've ever come to is just keeping the uh, keeping the parameters for a user in hashes associated with particular roles. That's the closest thing I come to, and then just pass the look up the look up the entry in the hash map, and then pull out the pull out the params that they can use. And it feels dirty and gross, and I've only had to use it once, so it's the closest thing I've come off with. So I was sitting and listening going, oh, please, let there be something that's better than my hackish solution. <laughs> so here's here's what I do in those cases. Uh, you know, it kind of takes similar to what you're saying, Brian, with the roles, but I don't actually store what attributes a user has access to within the database. You know, because if you add a new column, then you're going to have to have a rake task or something that's going to, uh, you know, add in that column and, you know, it could get messy. But uh, I usually break away from the MVC structure and I'll create another folder under the app directory called like params or strong params or something. And within there, I'll... um, uh, 
I think I call it permitted params typically. But from there, I will create a class that has um, a lot of the different attributes for a user. And then you can do some checks there because, you know, where it gets loaded in, you have access to the contacts of the current user and that stuff. So you can check if the current user is an admin or something like that. And if so, then you just have an empty array tapping and you're injecting in the attributes as it goes. So you can kind of do it like that. And then when you actually go to update the user, then you just call the permitted params dot user attributes or something. And because it has that context, it'll know what attributes that user has access to. Yeah, that's similar to how I'm how I'm doing it. I'm just my implementation is a little bit simpler than that. I'm never I'm actually not actually storing anything in a database. It's just a, I have an object that ha- an object that encapsulates a hash yeah. map. But it's uh, your your way seems a little bit a little bit more uh, clean than what I'm doing. So, that's Dave, cool. do you have a screencast that shows that? I'd I love do. To, I'd love to see. Can, yeah, can you link that? Because I'd love to watch that. That's a great <laughs> yes. idea. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, I think I think we've been sort of lucky in not not having projects that have like really complicated ACLs or something like that. Uh, so we'll, something we do really often is have like the if an app has like a consumer side or a user side and admin side, we'll just sort of firewall those two off. So the admins have their own controllers and then the users have their own. Yup, I've done that mm-hmm. more than anything else. Yeah. So I think that gets you quite far because once you're sort of managing the access control between different admins, then I think you're already dealing with a whole other kettle of fish. Yeah, one thing that I'll add, though, is that uh, a few years ago, I wound up building a couple of apps that looked a whole lot like Facebook clones. I mean, they didn't have all the features of Facebook, obviously, but you know, they had the feed and they had the groups and they had a bunch of other stuff. And so, um, you know, somebody would create the group and then all of a sudden you have full-on system admins that, you know, have full access to everything. But then you've got people who are admins in the group and moderators in the group and, you you know, and they're not admins and moderators in the other groups. And so then you have to have, uh, you know, conditional sort of ownership permissions. And as you kind of build things out and get to the different, you know, layers and levels and where the security exists in each of those, that's where it really starts to get complicated. And it's really tricky sometimes to keep track of, okay, well, this access to this feature at this thing is at this level and this access to the same thing for the same user in another context um, happens at a different level. And you just kind of have to keep track of, of where all of that kind of comes together. And I, I honestly haven't found a good solution for that other than copious documentation, which is not my favorite thing to write, but when it comes right down to it, you know, if I essentially have the hash map that um, Brian was talking about in my docs, so it's, um, you know, users, these users have access to this thing, and here's where you find it or modify it. That has helped and saved a ton of time more than once. Yeah, it's also worth keeping in mind that, you know, you might need some really complicated access permissions, like in your case, but often, at least in our case, clients will come in and they think they want like every single possible permutation, but you can actually sort of talk them out of it. Yeah. Into a much simpler model and that will save them money and us time and headaches. So it's don't sort of speculatively build your roles. So I think one of the first sort of Rails apps I built was uh was a website, like a, it was pretty much a CMS. And we a friend of mine and I, we built sort of every possible role you could have in a blogging system. And then like nobody ever used any of them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's true. The majority of your users in most systems are going to fall under either the power users or the regular users. Yeah, especially if you're building things for clients, it's worth always asking like, who's going to use this? And usually the answer will be like one or two people. Mm -hmm. At least on like the sort of administration side. And then that'll quickly narrow down what you actually need to do. Yep. 
You know, one of the coolest examples of permissions and, you know, limiting what a user has the ability to edit is the whole stack exchange framework. You know, the idea of leveling up as you level up or get more points, you get more permissions. I think that's just one of the coolest things ever. Yeah, though, I joined Stack Overflow quite late. So then I found it a supremely frustrating experience as a new user. Because <laughs> there was like a, I think there was like a question I knew the answer to, and then I wasn't allowed to answer it because I didn't have enough virtual points. <laughs> so we've talked about authentication and then authorization with pundit and uh, strong parameters. What else is there in security that uh, users need to be aware of when developing? This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Are you searching for a new job? That can be stressful, scary, and time-consuming. Pushy recruiters try to sell you on roles you don't actually want, and the job boards make you feel like you're throwing your resume into a black hole, never to be seen again. And sometimes you go all the way through the interview process just to find out at the very end that the salary, offer, or company culture doesn't match what you're looking for. Hired is the world's most intelligent talent-matching platform for full-time and contract opportunities in engineering development, design, product management, data science, sales, and marketing. We make your job search faster, focused, and stress-free. Instead of endlessly applying to companies and hoping for the best, Hired puts you in control of when and how you connect with compelling new opportunities. After completing one simple application, top employers apply to hire you. And on Hired, you receive personal interview requests and upfront salary information so you can make informed decisions about what opportunities to pursue over a condensed timeline. Hired offers access to more than 4,000 innovative employers, including big brand names like Facebook and smaller emerging startups. The size and type of company you want to connect with is totally up to you. And we help you find new opportunities in 17 major cities in North America, Europe, Asia, and Australia. Open to relocation? Let them know. Your privacy and autonomy in your job search is of utmost importance. And if you sign up today using the show's link, that's hired.com slash rubyrogues, you can get double the normal hiring bonus. That's $600 instead of $300. So go check them out at hired.com slash rubyrogues. Well, one thing is sort of keeping up to date. That's one of our perennial sort of issues. How do you how do you know that all your dependencies are secure? That's one we haven't like properly solved yet, as, as at least on in our projects. It's always a struggle. Sort of keeping up with what Rails versions and what Ruby versions are actually supported and still getting security updates is one. No, and then I think just that. That's a real challenge. That's always a real challenge, isn't it? When you have when you have all those dependencies. That was one of the questions I was going to ask you next was how you handle those dependencies. Yeah, we we yeah. use a product called Gymnasium, and I'll sort of I think like daily scan through your gem files and gem lock files and flag up any any dependencies that have issues. But we have a lot of projects, so even getting the sort of manpower to update all of them is not always easy especially especially if you have to update between major versions because the old one has a security flaw and then you have to sort of do all the QA stuff to make sure that it didn't actually break anything and yeah it's hard it's not there I don't think there are any easy solutions there yeah so there is one gem called bundler audit which kind of does a manual thing of what gymnasium does but I think it only works on reported issues or issues that have been patched but it's a really cool gem. You know, I've run that alongside of uh, Breakman. Do your yeah, client? Yeah, sorry, go on. Yeah, we've thought about like adding Bundler Audit to every Travis config we have, so that it will actually break if you try to push a build that uh, that has a security issue. We haven't quite gotten there yet, but it's certainly something worth considering. So once you can't run your CI uh, builds, then you sort of have to go and fix them. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I found it to be really useful. And, you know, luckily we've never really had an issue with the gem dependency. Uh, usually it was just a JavaScript library. Um, but another thing that we do on our testing side of things is we'll use the OWASP tool, which it allows you to run a private proxy uh, between the OWASP tool and your Rails application. So you just point your browser to a proxy which is um, hosted through the OWASP uh, application on your computer. And then you can start browsing around and find a lot of uh, client-side security issues that Breakman or a lot of other things just won't find. Oh, cool. I didn't know about that. 
Yeah, I'll try to find a link to it. But it's really cool. It's uh, I think it's OWASP Zap. And then you can just run a proxy uh, with it. And then you just start browsing your application like you normally would or do some testing. And then it'll basically start spitting out, you know, uh, client-side scripting issues or something like that. Right. Is it a hosted tool or something you run locally on your own machine? It's something you run locally on your machine. All right. It's all Java-based. Yeah, I've tried to sort of look into, like, automated scans of of apps, but they tend to see, be really expensive, and then, like, the, the marketing sites for them are really hazy in what they actually do. So I'm not really sure on what the, what the cost-benefit and that sort of thing is. Yeah, most of them that I've seen, uh, the static code analysis tools and other things like that where it'll do automated scans, the number of false positives that they generate is just overwhelming. You know, when you actually dig through a 500-page report to see which ones are actual true issues, you're only left with like 10 or so. Yeah, we've we've even had like a, one of our clients had a, like an audit on on the software we built for them. And then they come back with like a 20, 30 page report of what they did. And then there were false positives in there. And we had to point them out to them that this isn't actually any sort of vulnerability. It does nothing. Yeah. And yeah, it's a shame that uh, I guess it's a good thing and a bad thing that those tools are readily available. I think they are really expensive, but it just, you know, I'm sure the clients in those cases, they're like, you know, hey, what's this firm doing? You know, look at all these security issues when it's all false positives and then trying to convince them of that when they already have in their mind that, you know, the app is insecure is really difficult. Yeah. So does this conversation change at all if we start talking about APIs instead of user interfaces? I mean, some of this kind of happens behind the scenes either way, but some of it seems like, you know, the... The JavaScript stuff doesn't apply, but yeah, other stuff. Yeah, the JavaScript stuff doesn't apply, and then a lot of the sort of browser security things are don't matter. So like a content security policies and strict transport security and that sort of thing will well do nothing. It'll just be another header because the client won't won't respect it, and you can't rely on the client respecting it. Right, but how how um, do you wind up securing your APIs? Uh, usually use we haven't really done anything all that novel so we haven't built all that many APIs because these are like business tools so they don't usually have APIs for them so mostly when we do build APIs it's for like mobile apps that we also Mm -hmm. build so we have like full control there and then usually it's just like either, either some sort of API token or something like that Right, or some kind of OAuth yeah. authentication header. Yeah, of course, when you're building your own your own mobile app, you don't really need OAuth for that because you can just do whatever you want. And you don't need to right. put the you don't need to sort of distrust the client that they they're not authenticating the right user and things like that. Yeah, one other question I have is: Are there any ways to build things in? Because it seems like a lot of the security issues that we run into with with applications either start or end with some sort of social engineering. So, you know, people either reach out to and form a relationship with the developers or the maintainers or the admins and, you know, talk them into granting them access on the system and things like that. So do you add any kinds of warnings or things like that to your apps that say, you're changing this user's password, have you verified that they are who they say they are or things like that? Yeah, not really tools. I mean, we'll we'll tend to send users to like the password resets and like the device password resets. Mm-hmm. So they have to go through the sort of email flow. I mean, if a user doesn't know or like sends, a, sends us a message saying they need to reset their password, we'll just send them a link directly to the password reset form so that there won't be any cases where we manually reset somebody's password. They always have to sort of initiate it and then confirm the email. Right. And I think a lot of it is sort of mindfulness about what has security implications and what doesn't. Like we have a we have a client for whom we do like customer support and we'll get messages from 
their clients like well, i don't have access to this project i should have access to this project and every every time we'll email them back saying i can't give you access to this project but you can contact the administrator for that project and talk to them because ultimately they're the ones who know whether somebody's allowed to access the project or not yeah and then they're like oh never mind that's too much hassle <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if we've gotten any that were like false requests or anybody trying to get access to something that they shouldn't, but we definitely try and be careful about it. Or if, or if we get like a customer support message saying I can't activate our, my account, then we'll just try and sort of talk them into finding the email where they can activate it instead of shortcutting that, even though it's most likely they are the correct user to activate their account, but we can't trust that. Yeah. So another thing that um, I've done is keep an actual whitelist of IP addresses when authenticating to where even if the user is typing in the correct email or their username and password, if they're signing in from a IP address that they've never signed in from before, then I'll actually send them a confirmation email that they would then have to check their email address and then confirm that they are um, they have access to the account. So it's just a way to kind of like whitelist IP addresses and stuff. Yeah, that's an interesting approach. The closest we've gotten to that is whitelisting IPs for like the admin side of a site. So we use uh, the Rails uh, routing constraints for that. Mm-hmm. So we have like a, a white list of IPs that allow to access the the admin side, and if you try from anybody anywhere else, it'll just be a four hundred four. Yeah, one other one that I've used in the past, I actually wrote a gem for this way long time ago, is Project Honeypot, and um, so it does a reverse DNS lookup kind of thing, and so if you send it an IP address, it will tell you whether or not um, that IP address has been caught putting its hand in honeypots that they put out on the internet and so uh they've they've got all kinds of different spammers and things like that flagged in there so that, that's just another one if you're not wanting certain types of people to to get in yeah a cool gem is a uh, rack attack it's rack middleware that allows you to block uh for example repeated incorrect logging attempts or too many requests in, in a certain amount of time but that's sort of, it's quite low level, so you have to do quite a lot of the work yourself. It's not, it's not sort of autom- automatic. You have to set up those rules yourself. Nice. Yeah, Rec Attack's pretty awesome. Uh, using and that I'm, looking, I'm looking at the readme here, and one of the examples is the WP admin pass, <laughs> and just block those <laughs> right away. Yeah, my production logs are littered with those. It's it's funny every time I see them. And it's sort of, at a certain point, it just becomes frustrating that you know your logs are getting dirtied by these, and you're trying to actually solve something, and it's full of yeah. somebody trying to go to WP admin or <laughs> do some weird invalid UTF requests. Yeah, another thing that you can do is there's a gem out there called Invisible Captcha, which, like Chuck said, it's a uh, honeypot, but it also has a rate limiting to where if you fill out a form too fast, then it'll actually throw an error saying that, you know, you filled out this form too fast and it's just a way to protect, protect against bots and stuff from, uh, doing really quick posts. And then also has, uh, hidden fields, you know, with something that looks like you may enter like a, uh, email or, you know, just something fake. But if a value is returned there, then it's actually gonna, you know, see it as a bot trying to, um, fill in stuff that a user normally would never do. Yeah, you have to be careful when you're doing that, that you're not introducing something that makes it, in, it makes it difficult or inaccessible to somebody using like a screen reader or some other accessibility tool. Yeah. So a lot of the honeypot things will actually screw with like the access, accessibility options on on browsers, and that's not great either. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But it's it's surprising how little it takes to stop most sort of automatic submissions of forms. So just like that one extra text uh, text field that should be empty, that'll probably block almost all of them. 
because again, these aren't like these aren't targeted usually. It's some automated system going through, trying to fill in every possible form on the internet. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now, is there an automated way to test a lot of this stuff? I mean, we talked about break men and stuff, but you know, if if you're looking for specific things, is there a good, easy way to write tests around those? Uh, if there is, I haven't found it yet. So let me know. And like yeah. what, and like uh, somebody mentioned earlier, like the the number of false positives from all the automated tools is also kind of makes it untenable, at least in uh, for some of these things. Right. Well, I don't know if I have any other ideas or questions. Uh, anyone else want to chime in before we start going to picks? I'm I'm good. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks then. Uh, before we do that, though, uh, Matthias, if people want to see what we're, you're working on these days or follow you on Twitter, or GitHub, or anything like that, where do they go? Yeah, so tweet at Matthias Korhonen at on Twitter. So I've been using lots of imagination with my usernames, and I'm also my name on GitHub and MatthiasKorhonen.fi if you want to go to my website that has almost no content. Or then uh, I blog occasionally at randomerata.com. All right. Well, uh, yeah, let's go ahead and do some picks here. This episode is sponsored by Linode. Do you need a Linux server for your latest creation? Then check them out. They provide SSDs, 40 gigabit per second network connections, and top-of-the-line hardware to run your server on. It deploys Linux in seconds from the Linode cloud, and you can choose your Linux distro and node location right from the manager. They have locations in Asia, North America, and Europe, and they have a sweet set of tools to make it easy to manage it. If the web interface isn't your thing, they also have an API and a command line. So definitely go check them out. They also provide two-factor authentication, IPv6, DNS manager, cloning, scaling, and everything else that you want. So definitely get the most out of your Linux node and check them out at linode.com. And check them out at devchat.tv slash linode. Uh, Brian, do you want to start us off with picks? I'm, I'm happy to start us off with picks. Uh, the first thing that I want to I want to pick is that I've been spending a lot of time doing uh, regular expressions lately, and I've used Rubular for years. You know, a lot of people in the Ruby community are comfortable and, and pretty familiar with Rubular. Uh, but I found a tool that I think is is uh, more powerful for me. It's helping me out a lot, and I call it's called uh, regex101.com. Um, it lets you do the same thing that Rubular does. You can put in your your test string and put in your regular expression and see your matches. But it gives you this really nice breakdown of how the regular expression is is uh, working. So if you if you have one that you see in some code and it's not quite working correctly, you need to debug it. Uh, it's a pretty great tool because it'll show you how each part is uh, each part of the regex is um, selecting the text and 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 why the rules are working that way. So just that nice breakdown and the nice debugger that it uh, has is is just fantastic. Um, the other pick that I have is a book called um, Give and Take by Adam Grant, and it talks about how um, how we have t- types of people in society. We have givers, we have takers, we have matchers. And uh, the book talks about how you can create a lot of value in your life and in the lives of other people uh, by uh, understanding how, this, how these relationships work and how, um, how you can do your part to create a giving economy. Um, so I've been finding that to just be an absolute fascinating read and trying to apply some of those things to what I'm doing uh, in my in my daily work. All right, Eric, what are your picks? Uh, I just have one. Uh, so uh, I started listening to another podcast called Indie Hackers about two months ago. And it's a fantastic podcast built for uh, – it, it talks about different – stories of companies who have started with nothing started on the side as a you know, tiny startup as a side project and how they became uh, hugely successful and it's a, it's a fantastic podcast um it, so yeah recommend it indiehackers.com nice dave what are your picks uh my first pick is sumo logic and they offer a free 500 meg a day for your logs because that run multiple web servers uh, behind a load balancer. So tracking down a bug can be difficult sometimes. So having it 
all built into one place is really useful. And normally I wouldn't pick them because their UI sucks, but they have recently redone it, and the new UI is much nicer. Awesome. I've got a couple of picks. Uh, the first one is one of my favorite books is Ready Player One, and they're making it a movie, and I'm so happy. They had a, a trailer that they released at Comic-Con, and I'm not actually picking or putting in a link to the trailer, but there is a trailer breakdown. And so they, you know, they kind of run through all the Easter eggs that are in the, the breakdown. It's so cool. So cool. One other thing that I'm going to put out there is that I have decided to abandon Slack. Not entirely because there are some communities that I like being a part of that are on Slack. But for my own stuff, there is a self-hosted version called Mattermost. It's, you know, it's open source. It's built by other folks. And uh, I am really, really liking it. And I'm really liking that then I just pay for my server bill every month instead of pay per user on Slack. And so I'm probably going to move the Ruby Rogues Parlay and a lot of these other communities over there as well. And that way we have uh, recorded history of the channels and things like that. So uh, definitely picking that. And then, as I mentioned before, Matthias is actually speaking at Ruby Dev Summit. And if you want to come watch the talk for free, all you have to do is go to rubydevsummit.com and sign up for a free ticket. Um, there are paid tickets. The prices go up about right when the conference starts. So if you want an all-access pass and actually get into the Slack, Mattermost, whatever channel um, and things like that, then you can definitely do that. Um, it also gets you access to the recordings afterward and things like that. Um, but anyway, um, I'm, I'm excited about it. Um, I actually just got Matt's scheduled as one of our speakers. I think he's going to be the final speaker. So, uh, yeah, if you're interested in coming and hearing from Matt's and Uncle Bob and some of the guys on this show and just some of our uh, former guests about stuff in Ruby, then uh, definitely uh, get excited. Come over rubydevsummit.com and check it out. Um, I would also appreciate it, anyone who wants to share it on social media, but it's not a requirement for you to attend. Uh, Matthias, do you have some picks for us? I do. I have some Railsy picks. Uh, so first pick, my first pick is Webpacker 3.0 came out a few days ago, and it gets rid of the need to have a separate pro, uh, process for for Webpack. Oh, and nice. we've definitely been using a lot of React in our new projects, so that's I think Webpacker is the one and only way to go with that. And then secondly, I have Active Storage, which is coming out in I think Rails 5.2. Because file uploads, for some reason, are still difficult on the internet. So hopefully that'll make it a little bit easier for Rails developers. And then my final pick is, I don't know if you've heard of it, but Heroku. It's pretty great. Uh, we had a workshop today where we were talk, uh, walking through how to set up a Rails, a Rails server just on like a Linode for the developers we have who haven't done that before. And all I can say is that Heroku is the way to go. Nice. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this up. Uh, really looking forward to your talk, Matthias. And Cheers. Thank you for coming. We'll catch you all next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.